This is Woman Being Podcast, and I am Kelly, and I'm joined today by the lovely Kelly Ann and Emma. Hello, ladies. Hi, Kelly. Hello. Good afternoon, good evening, good night, whatever time of day it may be for you. But not good morning. Not morning. <laughs> for sure not that. We're not really a morning podcast. That would be my assumption. Really? I would guess that people won't wouldn't listen to us in the morning. But Ooh, I should look at yeah, our I metrics. I don't know. I'd be curious. We're probably like making dinner, having a glass of wine. Yeah, like driving home from work. Yeah. Light a candle for yourself. Yeah, we're like too, the much, too much in the morning maybe. Yeah, know. Or maybe true. people like a little slap in the face. I yeah. don't know. I get but, slaps in the face all the time in the morning. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I'm getting my news. That's always a yeah. Warm, fuzzy blanket, you know? Exactly. Um, So today, we are going to talk about a specific study um, Mm. about the misdiagnosis of women um, and gendered injustice within the medical community. This is based on, actually, we came up with the idea because of a podcast called The Retrievals, which is a serial production podcast, would highly recommend you listen to it, about um, several women who... um, underwent IVF treatment at a Yale clinic um, and uh, had their pain relief switched out for saline because somebody within the clinic was stealing fentanyl. Mm -hmm. And so hundreds potentially of women underwent a very invasive and painful procedure without any pain medication. And there has since been medical malpractice lawsuits filed against Yale. Um, The nurse who was stealing the fentanyl was convicted. And there's the question of why does the medical community tolerate women's pain Mm. so Confidently. And so anyways, there was a study referenced in this series. So listen to the series, but also if you haven't listened to the series, that's fine. We're going to go through this study that specifically um, talks about the misdiagnosis of women and how um, there is a gender gap in malpractice lawsuits for women. So that's the whole intro. All (laughs) that being said, we're going to dive in in just a minute. This is Woman Being, where we explore thoughts and opinions and have the freedom to change our minds. Without expectation or judgment, we will hold a safe space and support each other as we navigate together in the form of feminine. So this is going to be a fun one. How are you ladies feeling today? I feel like ragefulness is loading. I'm I'm gearing up. (laughs) I'm pre-gaming. Yeah, feeling good. Excited to talk about it. You know, The Retrievals was such a good podcast that I'm stoked to, like, re-enter that world and get some more insight Mm -hmm. around the topic. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah, The Rage is Loading, I think, Mm -hmm. is a great... That's a great precursor. So for anyone listening, just a little trigger warning. Um, If you've had any issues in the diagnosis, diagnostic medical field or at all in the medical field. Um, So the study that was referenced in the podcast, the retrievals that we're going to go over today is quite long. It's like 50 pages long. I have gone through it and pulled out excerpts that I'm going to be reading to you. You are going to get a chance to react to it. We're going to talk about it and kind of see how it sort of is reflective of sort of the gender gap in our everyday lives. Mm as women, Mm -hmm. but specifically, um, this talks about the medical field. Um, The study itself, we will have this linked in our podcast bio, is called Misdiagnosis. It's very clever. They 
broke it up into two words like miss diagnosis anyways misdiagnosis gendered injustice in medical malpractice law it was written by cecilia plaza and was published in the columbia journal of gender and law so mm. if you're curious about finding it you can find it if you can't for whatever reason use the link in our bio i'm gonna read a little intro and then kind of give you an overview of what we're gonna do and then we're gonna do it great great introduction Oof. women have historically experienced disadvantages in accessing quality medical care. One major disadvantage that women face relative to their male counterparts is the risk of misdiagnosis, which includes delays in diagnosis, wrongful diagnosis, and no diagnosis at all. Women are more likely to face misdiagnosis than men. This can be attributed to two main factors, the dearth of medical scientific knowledge about women's health and the widespread distrust among health professionals of their women patients relative to male patients. The combination of the knowledge gap, the medical community's lack of knowledge about women's health due to women's historical underrepresentation in medical research, and the trust gap, the medical profession's history of distrusting or downplaying women's reports of their own symptoms, creates an increased risk of missed, delayed, and incorrect diagnosis for women. So that's kind of the abstract there. The legal realm of medical malpractice then offers a remedy for individuals who have been adversely affected by medical errors due to negligence, including those who have suffered wrong, delayed, or misdiagnosis. However, the legal standard for medical malpractice currently protects the common practice of discounting women patients and their reports of their symptoms. The malpractice standard only requires that practitioners abide by what ordinary practitioners in the field would do in similar situations. The pervasiveness of the knowledge and trust gap suggests that this standard more negatively impacts women who experience and subsequently file suit for diagnosis-related malpractice than their male counterparts. What this basically means is there's two parts to this. Number one, just the fact that um, women receive lower quality medical care mm -hmm. in the medical community. That's just... A fact. She cites several sources on why that's true. And number two, the one way that patients kind of have power in terms of getting better care, which are these medical malpractice lawsuits, is also biased against women. Mm -hmm. And so we're going to go into some things here. Mm -hmm. The study that we're going to dive into analyzes the interaction of the knowledge and trust gaps with the legal standards for medical malpractice and the resulting impact on women's diagnosis related to medical malpractice lawsuits. So there's four parts to the study. Part one is mainly where we're going to live, which is going to give us a brief, well, it's not maybe not too brief, but it's going to give us a history of the knowledge and trust gaps and their impact on patient care. This is where you'll get enraged. Mm. Part two is sort of an overview of the medical malpractice law and the gaps in law which perpetuate gender bias. And then part three and part four, we're not really going to touch, but part three is like a bunch of data and how they gathered the data and how they organized the data in different ways. And then part four is like a summary. Um, but all that being said, that's the intro. Before we dive in, what are you thinking? And what is your personal experience in the medical space? Does any of this resonate with you? I really like the verbiage, the trust gap. Like that immediately rings home with me. And I'm like, oh, I know 100% what you're talking about. So I appreciate that this research names that specifically. For me, yeah, I've had a really interesting relationship with the medical system. I mean, from 
going to an OBGYN for extreme period pain when I was 18 and being given birth control as the solution that I chose not to take because I was like, I don't need this and it's not Mm -hmm. fixing my problem, to having like some really chronic health issues the last few years, Mm -hmm. bouncing around from doctor to doctor, not getting a diagnosis or being misdiagnosed, and finally having to land with this obscure doctor that was like a out-of-network, natural, holistic health doctor. And she actually helped me a lot. And so for me, like, I feel like I've experienced a lot of the gaps of the medical system with misdiagnosis, mistreatment of Well, mistreatment in the sense that I'm going to prescribe you some solutions to manage your symptoms, but I can't fix your problem and I don't even know what's causing your problem to having to go outside of the traditional medical system. So I feel like I've kind of run the gamut and a little bit. And so now I'm like, I'm ready like to get so mad because I've experienced a lot of these things that I feel like we're going to talk about. Yeah. Well, and one thing that may be encouraging is just knowing that your experience is definitely by no means isolated Mm -hmm. and it's not you. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And that is validating. Like I know like my, my issues, my problems that I was dealing with aren't just so completely like out there that it's just like the system's like, we can't help you. It's like, no, the system is not programmed to address these kinds of issues. And many other people are experiencing them. Yeah. 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 For me, I would say I have less experience with like doctors and being in medical establishments. Uh, Just I'm partly because I have mostly avoided them. Um, But there was a period of time where I was going to a lot of different doctors uh, because of autoimmune issues that I was having. And during that time, there was a lot of like before I got to the point of finally going to a doctor, there was a lot of self-medicating that I Mm -hmm. went through um, in trying to essentially avoid at all costs, like having to go to the doctors. Um, I think that there's part of me that just feels as though there's not much that they can do for me Mm. um, and that it's going to be a waste of time. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so I did a lot of just like popping pain relievers and stuff. Not like that makes it sound like a lot, but I was just (laughs) I was like taking pain relievers because I had full body joint pain. So uh, but then it got to the point where I, I couldn't like just tolerate it anymore. But there was a lot of like dealing with that pain and just kind of having to like keep doing life Mm. and not going to the doctors because the doctors didn't seem like a viable place for me to go Mm -hmm. for it. And um, it was like a last resort kind Mm. of option to me. Uh, And then I wound up getting passed around between multiple doctors and like having to like do all sorts of different tests. And that was exhausting for Mm -hmm. sure. But I, I have had mostly kind doctors and nurses that I've interacted with, I'd say. Uh, except I had one horrible dentist <laughs> <laughs> that I will never go to again. Sure. But besides that, uh, mostly okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you don't mind my asking, like, do you feel that kind of your lack of confidence in a doctor's ability to even help you has might have something to do with that sort of delayed diagnosis or – Like, maybe, did you ever feel like your pain was 
not taken seriously or anything like that? I think that I struggled to take my pain seriously myself. Mm. Uh, So in my mind, it was like, oh, everything's probably fine. I'm just like sore Mm. or I'm just like tired. Um, But actually I was having like an autoimmune reaction. Mm. And like, I, I don't, I don't remember the doctors ever telling me they didn't think that I was in pain or um, not believing me, but there was just a lot of mystery around what was happening. Mm-hmm. Like, it was like, oh, maybe you have arthritis. Maybe you have diabetes. Maybe you have Lyme disease. Maybe, like, there were so many things getting kind of tossed around. Um, but, I like, I think the first time I went to a doctor for this, I um, wound up surprised getting to have my blood drawn, which I had never had my blood drawn before. I'm very afraid of getting my blood drawn. Um, and as a a grown adult woman sobbed when they told me that I had to get my blood drawn and I had very, very kind nurses, like an extra nurse who wasn't doing anything came and like held my hand and talked to me while I was getting my blood drawn. And the other nurse like quietly, like got my blood um and that was really kind and helpful but like that's been more what my experiences have been in the realm of um I will say that that one dentist that I had he would not listen to me for anything that Mm. was happening like he was um like work it was just a cleaning he was like working on my teeth and cleaning my teeth and not letting me do the like um, the little spit sucker thing, like, cause you know, you're supposed to close your mouth and then the little thing sucks your spit out and then they continue so that you're not drowning. And I was like, so much spit was pulling up in my mouth. Sorry, I guess trigger warning if you don't like mouth <laughs> stuff. Um, that, and then I started choking and he was like, stop choking. What are you doing? And I was like, I, you, I can't swallow and I can't do the spit thing because you, like, aren't letting me clo- – giving me a chance to even close my mouth. Because oh normally other dentists have been, like – they'll tell you, like, all right, now close your mouth and, like, swallow or, like – Oh, my God. Your, yeah. But I choked multiple times <gasps> and he was, like, shocked that I, I choked multiple this human. times. Yes. What a horrible person. <laughs> but also, I just want to add, though, really quickly, I do think that what you're naming is part of – our conversation today because specifically the majority of autoimmune issues are held by women. And that is a failing Mm -hmm. of the medical system to not investigate and understand further. Yeah. It is interesting because I feel like what I hear a lot around autoimmune diseases is that they are very hard to diagnose. Mm -hmm. And there's a part of me that wonders, are they inherently hard to diagnose or are they understudied because it's a woman's Mm -hmm. issue? Well, and that is a great segue because we're going to start with part one, which has I think three parts within it, um, which if you remember correctly, was the knowledge gap, trust gap and consequences for women. Mm -hmm. So the knowledge gap is that first step, right? Which Mm -hmm. is why is there so little information about women and their health issues? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So getting into some history, ready for a lesson. Um, you, You guys might know about this already. Some of this might be new to you. I knew like some of it and then I didn't know lots of it. So here we go. There is less information available about women's health than about men's health. In in other words, there is a knowledge gap between the medical profession's understanding of men's health and women's health. This is a natural consequence of women's historical underrepresentation in biomedical studies and the relative neglect of diseases that predominantly affect women in medical research, both of which continue to this day despite patient advocacy efforts. The resulting knowledge gap affects the quality of medical care that women patients receive. 
Easy enough. The male body, as the default for medical science, goes back to the ancient Greeks. Aristotle believed women's bodies were simply mutilated male bodies. Mm -hmm. Ovaries were referred to as female testicles and were not named as a separate organ until the 17th century. Even in the 21st century, the male body is still often depicted as the default human body. Medical textbooks often use illustrations of the male body to refer to neutral body parts about three times as frequently. Mm. This is not a harmless error. There are actually sex-based differences in human tissues, organs, and the course and impact of diseases. Yet, women have been and continue to be underrepresented in medical research. Thus, for centuries, medical professionals have been treating women patients according to a male model that often does not fit women's bodies. This is probably in the realm of what you knew, but it it does have historical reasoning behind it. I'm so curious to know what the specific differences are like about muscle tissue between like a man and a woman yeah and like i'm also very curious to go home and flip through my roommate's medical textbooks because (laughs) she's becoming a cna yeah the question being like count the question being like do we even know yeah yeah you know do we know the differences yeah Yeah. Yeah. like we maybe we at this point we know there's a difference and that's like groundbreaking yeah (laughs) um Okay, but so going back into it, the National Institute of Health, or the NIH, you'll hear me refer to this a lot, is the largest public funder of biomedical research. And they took note of this issue in 1985 when it used new reports on gender representation in medical research. But not much tangible change occurred until after 1990. Oh. When they finally mandated the inclusion of women as research subjects. So, like... 1990 is when... So, like, five minutes ago. Yeah. <laughs> okay, cool. Great. Yeah. 30 years ago, which is, like, nothing mm-hmm. in the history in, in medical research. So, it wasn't until 1990 that it was mandated, um, along with an initiative to catch up on the data about women's bodies that was already available for men. So, it was both, hey, women have to be included in research, and we have to, like, recollect... Or, like, start collecting information about women specifically. The NIH Revitalization Act mandated that NIH-funded studies include women and racial minorities to conduct a valid analysis of differences. So... They added that, okay, now you also have to pay attention to how it affects women versus men. Mm-hmm. Um, it also mandated increased efforts to research conditions that disproportionately affect women, such as breast and ovarian cancers and osteoporosis. Well, this was a sign of much needed improvement. These measures were not as progressive as they seemed. The mandate on women's inclusion only applied to later phases of research and studies enrolling human participants. So studies at the cellular level or the animal research phase could still be all male. An imbalance not addressed by the NIH until 2014. Oh, so like. Two minutes ago. Uh Got it. 30 seconds ago. Yeah. These measures also failed to have the desired impact. Women continue to be underrepresented in medical research, and even if adequately represented, the majority of studies that include women don't conduct or publish gender difference analyses. Research on diseases disproportionately affecting women also remain underfunded compared to diseases that predominantly affect men. Hmm. So that would be like ovarian cancer versus testicular. Yes. Yep. That's so interesting, too, like, because what immediately comes to mind is, like, breast cancer, right? We all know someone who's had breast cancer, and, like, what is it, 90% of it is women. And, like, I remember having this thought when I was, like, like a couple years ago. I was like, 
So many organizations I know donate to breast cancer research. We've been donating to breast cancer research for a long ass time and we still don't have answers. We haven't figured this out. And like that in my mind compared to the fact that you said like the funding for women's research is so much lower than the rest of the funding that's gone elsewhere makes me think like this research that people have been donating to and like researching for years of breast cancer is still so small in comparison to the male counterpart. Which when you think about it, who's actually spending money on their health care? Exactly. Right? Like women are more willing to pay mm-hmm. to live a healthy lifestyle. Yeah. Women are way more likely to go to the doctors. Mm-hmm. So it, you can't yeah. say that it's like a economical reason that you would fund male research. It's just no, whoever right. is funding the research has specific interests. Mm-hmm. Right. Perhaps. Yeah. Well, it's just like I think on the podcast we've talked about this, but um, it's just like how uh, the pill for Viagra also could help relieve period cramps. Yes. Um, and but it's never been marketed for that. And I don't know if it has even ever been approved for that. Mm-hmm. But it was, I believe, originally meant for period cramps. And then it was discovered that it could help men get hard, probably because they were testing this period cramp pill on men. And <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't know. That's anecdotal. Don't like take me as like a, a factual source here. But thinking about something like that, like it is not actually necessarily a good economic decision that they're making Mm -hmm. it's it's an emotional decision because Mm -hmm. it's based in patriarchy Mm -hmm. uh because uh, women mostly have a period every single month but men may not need to use viagra that as frequently you know Mm -hmm. that is not a reliable frequent thing that they're going to need but and it's only through usually a certain phase of their life that they yes. need it. Yeah. Yes, but women have a way bigger chunk in which they are menstruating. Mm-hmm. And uh, women would pay for something that would be better at regulating their cramps and mm-hmm. relieving pain. For sure. Like, that is just mm-hmm. – that is something that would be a moneymaker. Mm-hmm. And the decision is not about money. Yeah. Yeah. Also, what you said about making emotion-driven decisions, to me, like, the fact that it's not even – The fact that some governmental body or organizational body had to be like, hey, you need to include people of all types in Mm -hmm. your research. And until 2014, it was both like majority male animals being tested on. Like it's not like now necessarily I don't really condone animal testing. But anyway, like the idea that it's like the majority like male like being tested on, it's like, I'm so sorry. That is not a data-driven decision at all. Mm-hmm. Just like you said, it's a it's an emotional decision that like no one's thinking about really. I mean, I think it's a convenience decision because women have hormonal cycles and female animals have hormonal yeah. cycles. Right. Like that, there's like more variables. That, yeah, that make more factors. That create more variables, mm-hmm. which, oh my gosh, it's almost like the more variables you have, the more considerations you have to make. Right. Anyways. Yeah, like maybe factor that in and do yeah. your job. Maybe that should be factored in when yeah. we're giving women drugs. Yeah. 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 So, so it gets worse. All right. Oh, good. Um, so we know the NIH. Applause to them. 1990, we started studying women. Hooray. Right? No. Uh, the NIH no. is not the only funder of biomedical research. Mm. Most research, most research, most is Privately funded by pharmaceutical companies and reviewed by the FDA. 
So there are no federal guidelines requiring those private funders to include women in their studies, and the FDA has not implemented any such requirements into its approval process. Mm -hmm. So here's some fun facts about that. From 1977 to 1993, the FDA explicitly prohibited women quote, of childbearing potential, unquote, from participating in early phase drug trials, which had a chilling effect on women's representation altogether. Researchers were hesitant to enroll women even in later phases of research, and women remain underrepresented in the majority of late phase studies. So that is called reproductive uh, gatekeeping, I think, Mm. where people, where women of reproductive age have been intentionally excluded from studies i'm assuming as a re- reasoned by like a risk to their childbearing ability mm-hmm. from that some is so of- so stupid like just <laughs> unfathomably stupid like the, it's not even logical because so to tell women young women that are of childbearing age that they cannot participate in a medical study because it could affect their fertility is not factoring in the fact that they are 50% of the fertility exactly in, in creating a baby mm-hmm. so uh, their husband yep. or spouse or whoever mm-hmm. could participate mm-hmm. in this study and it doesn't matter that he's of childbearing age and that his fertility could be at risk mm-hmm. that is irrelevant mm-hmm. um so, that makes no logical sense. Also, what about the fact that after you've done the study and have tested it on zero people of childbearing age, you are giving these drugs to people of childbearing age? Exactly. Yeah. So we won't know if it impacts fertility until it is released to the general public. And then, uh-oh, we've had, yeah. we have some problems. Yeah. And so instead of consenting adults participating mm-hmm. in a study, yeah. you are releasing untested drugs onto the market yeah. mm-hmm. that could potentially be very harmful Mm -hmm. yeah and on top of that who are you to decide whether or not this woman gets to risk her fertility exactly Mm -hmm. that is not your job actually yeah Yeah. like it is not these organizations or whoever's job to determine that women don't get to do something that's going to risk their fertility in fact women get to choose whether or not they want to do that it's just like how people will reject women from getting hysterectomies Mm -hmm. like that is wild. They're like, well, you don't have any kids yet. Or what if you change your mind later on? Who cares? She's Not a consenting problem. adult mm-hmm. oh who's God. making a decision. And we get to do that. That is part of, like, living in a free nation. Yep. Yep. So it gets it continues to get worse. Another fun fact. FDA still does not require representation of female cells or animals in early phase research, nor gender difference analyses for late phase research. As a result, women have been left out of some of the biggest and most influential medical studies in recent history Hmm. and continue to be underrepresented in biomedical research. So some of those big studies that we've been left out of is we were completely left out of the Baltimore Longitudinal longitudinal study of aging which purported to explore quote normal human aging unquote oh cool great just completely normal human no it explored normal male male human aging (laughs) so interesting there that's awesome um something called the physician's health study also known as the famous quote baby aspirin study on preventative effects of aspirin on heart disease and um a 1982 trial studying the effects of diet and exercise on heart disease Oh, mm. so the number one killer 
Mm -hmm. uh, in the nation Mm -hmm. after, is it cancer? I think it's after cancer. Actually, both of those studies are related to heart disease. The women were just left out. Yeah, we don't care about their heart disease. And this one gets me. Even studies examining the effects of obesity on breast cancer. Hmm. The FDA has excluded women from studies on Mm -hmm. breast cancer. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's Mm -hmm. wild because I do, I feel like this is something, there's two in there that have to do with like weight Uh as well and like sort of like physical health in relation to these diseases. And I feel like it's pretty common knowledge that women and men lose weight differently. And gain weight differently. Yeah, Yeah. lose and gain weight differently. And so why would that not be a fundamental part of a study that's looking at obesity in people with breast cancer or in obesity with people with heart disease? That makes zero sense to not... Like, this is, it is known that these two different sexes have a different biological response to weight gain and loss. Mm-hmm. I don't understand why they wouldn't. Like, it's, it's, it's like neglect, mm-hmm. flat out neglect. Yeah. No, it definitely is. Yeah. I'm going to say something controversial, but I'm like, I don't know how. You can trust the FDA, knowing they actively just don't exclude women do in exclude. studies. Uh-huh. They actively, yeah, that's what I mean. They actively exclude women yeah. from studies. And I'm like, how can I trust anything? And again, we're talking most of the medical research in the U.S. is conducted by private pharmaceutical companies, which is regulated by the FDA. Mm-hmm. Cool. So this is awesome. Like we can talk, we can talk about progress. Hooray! The NIH realized their wrongs in 1985, and they made change in 1990. So we have 30 years of medical research that's publicly funded. But for any privately funded research, there are no federal regulations, which mm. is where the vast majority of the research yes. happens. Yes, as mm. well. So. Wow. Hmm. <laughs> if you were curious if there's such thing as sexism, here's here's some for you to look at right now. <laughs> so um, this is not to say that medical knowledge about women's health has not advanced. Hooray. Yeah. I um, mean, even though it's not mandated, it can still happen. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, there is knowledge we do have about women's health that has not yet translated well into medical education and the practice of medicine. So what we have gained is still taking its time to mm. infiltrate our education systems and just our actual physical practice. And our medical model- models are still based on the average male body as a default. So the first United States textbook on gender-specific medicine was not published until 2004. And by 2011, about 70% of medical schools in the United States and Canada still had minimal to no curriculum coverage on sex and gender differences. Mm. So... That's the knowledge gap we're dealing with when it comes mm. to trying to get diagnosis on autoimmune disorders right. or Research chronic on health issues. PCOS, PCOS or endometriosis mm-hmm. or totally. et cetera. Yep. That's just like minuscule the amount of research that exists. So mm. which leads us into the trust gap, because obviously if there's a lack of knowledge from the medical field about women's health, women well women are going to start to lose trust in the medical system. So in general, medical professionals are more likely to discount women patients' symptoms in favor of their own knowledge about what illnesses, quote, typically affect women. Professionals are also more likely to discount women's symptoms altogether and label them as psychological in origin. 
going to dive more into that. This leads to a pervasive distrust between women and their medical practitioners. And it's a two-way street. Professionals do not trust women patients as reliable reporters of their own symptoms. Mm. And as women patients feel discounted and distrusted, they in turn distrust their medical professionals. So are either of you familiar with the term hysteria? Yes. (laughs) Why, what could you mean, Kelly? (laughs) (laughs) The history of distrust begins with hysteria in the 5th century. Mm. When the term was first used to refer to illnesses in women caused by the womb, which at the time was nearly every illness that could afflict a woman, based on medical science at the time. Um, All and- <laughs> came out of that little womb. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it was just reproductive in nature. The devil's playground. <laughs> <laughs> in the 18th century, this definition changed such that hysteria became a catch-all category for women's illnesses, particularly those thought to be psychiatric in origin. This idea of a connection between women, their reproductive organs, and psychiatric illnesses stuck around through the 19th century and was solidified in the 20th century with the Freudian school of thought. Thanks for nothing, Freud. Mm. The significance of the history of hysteria for modern women is that the idea that women's illnesses and symptoms are tied to women's reproductive systems, um, which is something called the bikini medicine approach. And why? <laughs> I don't, you know what? It's kind of cute. I don't know. Bikini <laughs> like medicine a, approach. I think it's kind of cute. I think it's a little patronizing, but it's also kind of cute. It's like the no-no zone, you know? Yeah. Anything okay. under the bikini. I don't know. It's <laughs> stupid. So, and the idea that women's symptoms are more likely than men's to be psychological in origin are deeply ingrained in the history of the medical profession, which basically means that... Historically, women's symptoms are either tied to their reproductive system or their mental state, and this type of thinking persists. Mm. Hooray. Hooray. So, <laughs> yeah, there's there's this trust gap there as, yeah, as a result of this. Sure. One thing that uh, this makes you think of, a slight anecdote. Um, I was watching a video from the Try Guys, very famous YouTubers, if you haven't heard of them, uh, and they had a menstruation simulator or a menstrual pain simulator. Uh, It was like, you know, little things you strap on and they kind of like hurt you with electric pulses to make you feel like you were having menstrual cramps. And the guys tried it on and tried it at like different levels according to like how bad a cramp could be. And they were in so much pain, like doubled over and had to go through their whole workday with these things on. Mm -hmm. They had one of their female producers try it on to like confirm, is this really how painful it can be? Because they were like, I don't believe it's this painful. Like, this is so bad. This is so, so painful. There's no way women just walk around and like go to work and go about their days and they're feeling like this. And she put it on while one of the guys sat next to her and had it on. And they went up to the same levels at the same time. And she was cool as a cucumber the entire time. And he was like, once again, doubled over in pain, like so, so, so painful. And she was like, yeah, this is pretty much how it feels. And and like it was it was funny to watch them realize how painful it was. And obviously every woman's experience is different according to how painful her period is. Uh, But women are expected to go about their days in sometimes in immense pain Mm -hmm. while menstruating. Mm -hmm. And I think that if women are able to tolerate that and go through that, really doctors should be worried about them not expressing how much in pain they actually are. Not thinking that they are lying about being in pain, but that they might be lying about 
how bad the pain actually is. Mm -hmm. And like when a woman actually expresses that she's in pain, being like, oh shit, she must really be in pain. Exactly. Because women in general have a higher pain tolerance. Yes. So to not believe women in that respect, it's just like baffling to me when women consistently go through some of the most painful things in life, whether it's through regularly menstruating every single month and going through the pain of that. And then on the other end of the spectrum, giving birth, like (laughs) women are able to endure so much pain. We should be worried that women are experiencing more pain, Mm -hmm. not that they're not experiencing it at all. Like the hysteria argument is so flawed in Mm -hmm. that respect to me. We should be worried that men are overemphasizing their pain because they can't handle a freaking period cramp. You know, like I, (laughs) I just don't understand. I mean, I do understand because obviously we're in a male dominant society that prioritizes (laughs) men and their needs and their wants and not women's. But it is, it is just so illogical. Well, if you think about like going back to the Greeks, if if we truly believed that women's bodies were just mutilated yeah. male bodies, then of course they're they're just not functioning the same, right? Mm-hmm. Of course you're going to have like painful experiences because you're just an impure version of a man. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is really gross. It mm-hmm. is. But like those historical realities are significant yeah like we don't think like logically that way but they still persist in like our implicit culture yeah Mm -hmm. yeah when you think about the ways that are like even in the united in the united states our government was so structured around this like um ideification of greece Specifically, like when it comes to the tenets of democracy, even just like the way that we build buildings that have to do with government and law, like those were all reflective of Greek culture because of this like ideification of the philosophies and the um, like political ruminations of Greek people that we've like idealized as like these geniuses, Mm -hmm. which I'm sure that they were very smart, but like. It's been a long time since then. Mm-hmm. Like, maybe we need to update. And, like, it's it's naive to not think that other cultural norms and other, like, ways that patriarchy was infused in Greek culture as well, ancient Greek culture specifically, and that's going to impact us as well when we're structuring our society around it. Mm-hmm. When we're telling women of childbearing age, no, you can't participate in this study because yeah. it's too dangerous to the unborn child that is yeah. potentially maybe yes, going to happen. exactly. Right? But who cares about the little sperm swimming around yeah. in, right. in any other guy? We're not worried about They're not worried about guys. that. Even though I'm pretty sure that it's about a 50-50 split between men and women in terms of fertility issues. Like, yes. That it is just, just as, as many often, men yes. have infertility issues as women. Mm-hmm. So why would we not be trying to protect Maybe it's because of all the studies for fertility as well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, maybe if they did less studies, they'd be more fertile. <laughs> so it's just, it's so silly because... Yeah. Yeah, again, I just I feel like a broken record. Yeah. It doesn't make sense logically. Yeah. Well, and it actually has dire consequences, which mm-hmm. is sort of our third section of part one, yes. um, which is how, how does this actually work out practically for women in experiencing the medical field? Um, we've talked about this, discounting pain. Women experience longer delays in the emergency room before being treated for acute abdominal pain. Women with endometriosis experience on average a 10-year delay between the onset of symptoms and receiving a diagnosis. Mm -hmm. 10 years. 
Um, because a surgical procedure is required to diagnose endometriosis, a physician must first be convinced that their patient's pain is more than just, quote, bad cramps. Mm-hmm to send such a patient for diagnostic surgery. Moreover, about 61% of women who eventually get an endometriosis diagnosis are initially told by their healthcare providers that there's nothing wrong with them. Mm -hmm. So that means if you're going to make that 10-year journey, 61% of you started with hearing that you're fine. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You're imagining things. Yeah. Okay. Another example. In the early stage ovarian cancer. Oh, my gosh. This one really gets me. Um, it's often completely missed until later stages when the survival rate has dropped significantly. Like we're talking like you might have a 30% chance or sorry, a 90% chance of survival in early stage. And by the end, like you have like a 30% chance when you typically get diagnosed in our current medical system. It was until recently, 2007 specifically, widely believed that ovarian cancer has no symptoms until its later stages. The what? truth, however, is that there are symptoms, bloating, pelvic or abdominal pain, difficulty eating, feeling full quickly, uh, urinary frequency or infrequency. Women with early stage ovarian cancer often have these symptoms prior to diagnosis, but are frequently misdiagnosed with IBS, UTIs, or simply told that their symptoms are normal for menopausal women. Mm. So... Most early stage ovarian cancer gets missed. Mm. Um, And to add insult to injury, women who report chronic pain conditions, Kelly, Mm -hmm. are so much more likely to be told the pain is all in their heads. So this (laughs) discounting of pain is going to slow the process of diagnosis, which put women at risk for not receiving disability benefits that they deserve, perhaps, if they have chronic pain issues. Um, They might not get treatment early enough for them to have curable, like, or valid treatments for a good cure. They have increased risk of not going into remission. They might have permanent damage caused by not having something addressed that could have been addressed early on, etc. The list goes on with yeah. the danger of that. Or it's going to just increase the rate of just blatant misdiagnosis, which mm-hmm. especially if the illness in question shares any symptoms with any aspect of the reproductive system. Uh, whether it be menstruation, pregnancy, motherhood, or menopause. Mm. Which I don't know if you guys are familiar with the symptoms of pregnancy, but they are vast. Oh, yeah. (laughs) There's so many. So, so many. Or the symptoms of menopause. They are vast. Yes. And so these – so many things that actually afflict women are just either they take forever to finally nail down or they're just completely ignored or – they're misdiagnosed as something else. Mm-hmm. Oh, you just have bad periods. Yeah. yeah. Have a birth control pill. Yeah. 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 It's, I'm, as I'm reflecting back, I'm like, I've had some pretty rough experiences within the medical system, but I'm really grateful that, like, I haven't been told a lot of those things. And I think that's unfortunate that that's a unique experience. Yeah. Like, my doctor, when I went, to like when I was 18 and she gave me birth control, she was like, I think you have endometriosis. I don't really know because there's a surgery, which by the way, how crazy is it that there something that is estimated to affect a large portion of the population, you can't diagnose properly and formally without an invasive mm-hmm. surgery. Yeah. Well, and I've also heard that there are things like certain types of cancers in men that can just be 
detected with a blood test. Exactly. Mm. Like, but why then, is there not a blood test yeah. for yeah. endometriosis? Seriously. Like, yeah. why does that not exist? Yeah. It's wild. There's um a influencer that I follow. Her username is Mick Zazon or Zazen. I don't know how to say it, but she just recently finally had the surgery for endometriosis after 10 years of two-week-long periods of pain during and after sex, of UTI and IBS-like symptoms, of feeling like she had mono most of the time, where she had such low energy that she, like, couldn't do it. Like, she had all of these different symptoms Mm -hmm. for 10 years and then finally was able to have the surgery and be diagnosed with endometriosis and finally have the clarity of what's been happening to her body. And it's so heartbreaking. Mm -hmm. And then the next heartbreaking thing is like our lack of even solutions for endometriosis at all. Right. Like it's a hysterectomy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Which is- That's it. For women, that's huge. That's removing an entire humongous set of organs from your body. Mm -hmm. That is no small thing. Completely throwing off your hormone system Mm -hmm. that your body has functioned in. Yeah. And I think like anyone thinking that this doesn't affect them or doesn't have anything to do with them, like, you know, people with hormonal cancer, like- You yourself might be experiencing symptoms that you are struggling to figure out what they are. Like, this is very serious and, like, like, impacts women literally everywhere. Like, surely there's something better. Like, this is sort of like we're going back to the dark ages where it's like, oh, no, you have an infection. We're going to cut off your leg. Yeah, literally. You know what I mean? That's what it is. That's how bad it is instead Mm -hmm. of like, oh, let's find – Drug treatments, let's find, yeah. re- like, hormone treatments, let's... Let's no. figure There's out no. why the cells uh. want to reproduce outside of the uterus. Like, mm. that is yeah. endometriosis. Let's figure out why that's happening. Yeah. Yeah. Is What's there a medication this? that can reduce that cell mm-hmm. overgrowth? Yeah. Like, I'm sure that there are people researching this. There have to be. Or maybe they're not. I don't know. But, like, it's astonishing to me that, like you said, it is the dark ages. Yeah. Yeah. It's, like, so... One, I think it's even like specifically with endometriosis, it's something that so many people don't even know about or wouldn't even know to ask their doctor about. Yeah. Right. Uh, or it's something that seems to be so easy to misdiagnose for other things. Mm-hmm. Like if if you're having symptoms like Mick did of like of UTIs and mm-hmm. of IBS, it's like, oh, you just have a UTI right now. Like we'll just, you know, Here, fix your UTI or mm-hmm. you have IBS. So we need to figure out your digestive issues that you're having. Like, mm-hmm. but it was all stemming from endometriosis. Yeah. And it, yeah, I'm like, it, there's part of me, I, I kind of hate this comparison because I feel like it's just kind of overused um, as like a way of comparing men and women. But like, if men had this, how would it have been treated? Totally. Like, would we have more information? And would this be a much bigger concern? Would we be having, like, loads of endometriosis 5Ks to, like, raise money oh for yeah. endometriosis if it happened to men? Like, would we have way better ways to discover endometriosis and to test for it? Like... I don't understand how it doesn't show up on in other ways. Like, yeah. is there if cells are reproducing outside of your uterus, like, can you see that in some sort of scan or x-ray? Like, can you is there anything? But like doctors don't even know what to look for. Right. It sounds like. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, 
And it also makes me think of like um, hormonal cancers. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of them, you have to have really specific blood work done. And like, it's not like a standard panel, you know? And it's like, I don't understand why there's not like standardized screenings for things like this. Like, it should be a part of a checkup. Hey, we're checking you for a bunch of different things and we're just making sure your hormones are in check. And that is one thing, though, that I will say I have experienced. I've brought up to a doctor in the past when I was struggling with a million symptoms and issues. And I was like, I don't know. I think I might just have a hormone imbalance or something's going on because like all these things and it's crazy. Mm -hmm. They're like, you're young and healthy. You don't. And first of all, I'm coming to you saying I'm not healthy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Something is wrong. And they're like, you're young. You're healthy. You probably don't have a hormone imbalance. I'm like, fact check. The vast majority of people have hormone imbalances because we live in a stress-induced world. Like, Well, didn't you have someone, like a doctor or a nurse practitioner, tell you one time, like, maybe this is just the way your body is? Uh, My doctor, actually. Oh, my my God. doctor told me, "Maybe maybe your body just works this way. But they also did tell me this hormone test would actually be probably a waste of your money. So I don't want you to waste your money. And I'm like, first of all, it's my money. Yeah. And I get to decide as I bang my chest in aggression and anger, I get to decide how I want to spend it. And if I want to spend $300 on a blood test and I can do that, let me do it. Yeah. Like, let's find out. Let's prove your hypothesis. If I am so healthy and young, Let's prove that I don't have a hormone imbalance. Well, and that just goes back to the hysterics, or the hysteria thing. Like, you wouldn't be at the doctor trying to get help right. if there wasn't something wrong. Yeah. Right? Like, you're not just, like, just checking to make sure. No. You know, like, you're there because you're experiencing symptoms yeah. that are affecting the, your yeah. quality of life. Yeah. yeah, that's not a fun Tuesday afternoon. No. Let's I, get a hormone panel. No, I posit most people aren't, like, thrilled to get to go to the doctors. No. Like, no. that's just... Yeah. Wild. Oh, I would be thrilled to go back to the gyno. That would be so fun. <laughs> I had a great gyno experience. I loved my gyno. <laughs> Anyways, but yeah, besides that, like, you don't want to, it's no. just, that's not something people like to do. No, that's go to not the a good time. No. Yeah. No. Yeah. And then lastly, before we move on to part two, there's a part, a section of the study that acknowledges intersectionality mm-hmm. as a factor on this. Um so it's important to note that gender interacts with other factors like race, socioeconomic status, age, weight, etc. Mm-hmm. So um, obviously being a wealthy white woman is going to be your best um, advantage in terms yeah. of being able to access medical care that mm-hmm. does get what you need and do- doesn't discount pain, etc. Um, and that... Uh, women in minorities, queer people, et cetera, are going to have an even harder time mm-hmm. than sort of like the generalized statistics that we've discussed here. So yeah. a gender gap always is very binary and doesn't always include um, the complexity of other intersections of identity. So yeah, have to bring that up. Um, I'm, I would love to hear like beyond our table, like what other people's experience has been and like the layers of how, um, yeah, identity affects medical care. For sure. Unfortunately, the study doesn't really break that down a ton, but I want to acknowledge it. So part two in this, which I'm going to mainly summarize uh, before we get to the conclusion here, um, is the medical malpractice law as a recourse 
part of this, Mm -hmm. which the whole point of the study was to measure sort of the gender gap between women and men in the medical profession and how uh, medical malpractice lawsuits as an opportunity to gain like hopefully to A, make progress and B, to gain like some sort of what's the word like kickback, Mm -hmm. I guess, from your bad experience in the medical profession is built into our society. But it's actually not necessarily help as helpful as it should be for women. So one thing I want to go into is that there is an issue of how these lawsuits are um, formatted that prevents women from being able to get as positive or as much money back. Mm. So both in receiving even like even winning the case and then also in like the amount of money that they receive in the case. But the way that it's structured is um, for a long time was by the locality rule, which was that if someone was being sued for medical incompetency, essentially, they would bring in another local medical professional to like set the standard for what like a quote normal person would have done in their stead, which became problematic in a lot of ways because medical professionals within a local area would kind of band together Mm. and could like... So you just bring on a friend. Yeah, you could bring on a friend or there was also just sort of camaraderie within the medical community to not like undermine someone else's practice who might be 20 miles away from your own, right? Mm. And so there was sort of a solidarity among these people and a lack of incentive for someone to testify against someone else. So that ended up not being a very good way to measure. And so most states have since switched to a national rule that like whatever the national standard would be for how this is treated, you would bring in a medical expert who can kind of set the average peer base level um, for your case. And says here, even in states with a national rule, medical malpractice standards are largely protective of physicians. Practitioners need only be, quote, minimally competent, unquote, and a plaintiff's expert must be able to testify that the defendant's actions fell below that minimal standard, not just below an optimal standard of care. And so the point that is brought up in the retrievals, this podcast we were talking about, And the point that I'm going to say here is the biggest problem we're coming up against um, in litigating the gender gap in medical care is that what's deemed minimally competent across the board for women includes all of the issues that we've discussed Mm -hmm. up until now. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. it's normal for a doctor to delay or misdiagnose women's conditions and or to fail to provide pain relief or to chalk something up to hysteria. Um, In addition to being generally less educated about women's health as more up-to-date studies about our bodies are released. So the cycle continues. Mm -hmm. There's a gender gap. There's a system for removing the gender gap, which like feeds back into the gender gap. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting to me because, I mean, I get that many doctors are not set up for success on how to diagnose and treat women yes. because it's not part of what they're learning yeah, in medical they're school. They're not given the knowledge. That's yeah. not part it of it doesn't exist. Yeah. So unless they are actively seeking those things yes. out of what small amount of knowledge there is out there, then there is a sense of that where I understand where they're like, well, this is not what's normal. Mm. But that also just perpetuates that same norm and like reinforces it as correct rather Mm -hmm. than just common Mm -hmm. and 
like it it puts you into that loop of well like yes this is like a disparity that we have in the medical community we want to try to sort of correct it but also all these doctors that are already out there they haven't had a chance to learn these things so they can't be prosecuted for them because it's actually normal but maybe we'll try to sort of kind of fix it eventually one day mm-hmm. kind of yeah <laughs> and the example that's brought up i think in the study and also in the retrievals is like women's heart attacks um, symptoms are different from male heart attacks. And so as a result, women's heart attacks are often not like caught. Yeah. And women could be sent home and like literally could die from not being treated for a heart attack. Let's say a woman goes into the emergency room. She doesn't receive a proper diagnosis and she dies in the lawsuit. They could basically be like, well, yeah, a lot of practitioners would miss that. Mm-hmm. therefore that's yeah. normal therefore they didn't do yeah. anything wrong yeah mm-hmm. and <laughs> yes i literally i think about the fact that i could have a heart attack and not know it often yeah. like that is something that rotates yeah. in my head because i heard that one day at, at a doctor's office yeah and i was like i could have a what mm-hmm. like my symptoms are different from a man and so i may not even know that i'm having a heart attack well i don't I think one. i even know that a woman could even have a heart attack until like Really? Until, I don't know, last 10 years. Like, what? I feel like I learning about heart attacks growing up, was, it was always a male yeah. thing. Same. Oh, and it was same. always the left, you know, the pain in the left side of the yeah. arm and the, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. like the oh. breathing and all that stuff. And so, like, to me, the idea of a woman having a heart attack was not even, like, on the grid. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I'd heard that in a doctor's office when I was, like, a teenager. So I don't really remember not okay. knowing that. But, uh I think I also just assumed, like, we have hearts, too, so Mm. they could be attacked. (laughs) They could be attacked. (laughs) Obviously, that's not really how a heart attack works. But, um, yeah, that that is a big fear. It's like, what if I don't know that I'm having one? Or I've thought about this a lot recently is what if I (laughs) – because we're talking about how women have such high pain tolerances. Women just, like, bear through a lot of pain Mm. before actually going to a doctor – Um, and I will have the fear that I'll have appendicitis and not know because you'll know. That's what everyone tells me, but like, I don't know that I'll know. I know, but like, I've seen someone actively have appendicitis. But was it a man or a woman? It was a woman. Okay. You'll know. (laughs) I'm just saying, but I don't know that I'll know. I mean, some (laughs) people, it's true. Some people don't know and their appendix like ruptures and it's like mortifying. I've seen that too. Yeah. That was a man. Um, yeah. I, that's just like yeah. another fear where it's like if I'm not feeling or registering all the pain that I'm feeling, mm. then I'm going to have a medical issue and not know. Well, and then and I, it will be too late. I can definitely <laughs> see for you as a person who sort of has a history of kind of not acknowledging your own pain. Yeah. That that can I like will tolerate scary. a lot of pain. Yeah. 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 And like be sort of like, well, I'm going to be fine. Yeah. But, but that is also a fear of mine yeah. too. Like I like I'm like I don't know. Is it a is it a fart? Is it a really bad period cramp? Or is it literally appendicitis? <laughs> there is a test yeah. you can do though. If you lay on your I forget which heel. You'll have to look it up. But if you lay flat on your back and you pick up a heel and have someone like just smack it, um, you'll feel a sharp pain in your belly if you have appendicitis. Oh huh. yeah. It's right. like it's like a thing. Hot tip from yeah. Kellyanne. <laughs> Hot tip um, from someone whose sister had appendicitis. Yeah. Mm. Um, 
But I think also back to what we're talking about, what I think is also interesting to consider is um, the gender gap in medical professionals. So doctors, I'm going to get the percentages wrong just saying that now, but I think it's roughly 85% of doctors are male. And then for nurses, it's flipped. 85% of nurses are female. And so I think that's something interesting as well to consider as we talk about these things because, yeah, I feel like men just in general might not be as concerned about women's issues. Well, I think that's interesting because I think depending on the woman, sometimes I feel like women doctors can be more dismissive Mm -hmm. because they come up against this kind of stuff all the time. That's a hot take. I don't know. I will say it was a female doctor that told me like my hormones were probably fine because I'm perfectly healthy and I'm telling her I'm not perfectly healthy. Yeah. And then telling me it would be a waste of my money. Yeah. And I almost wonder if there's like a male, a a tendency for male doctors to be more susceptible to like an emotional woman. Mm -hmm. Whereas like a woman is maybe more likely to dismiss an emotional woman. I don't know. I don't know if that's true, but I do think... Women in the medical field have had to overcome so much to just even be afforded the right to be there, mm-hmm. which I think that requires a little bit of a denial of mm-hmm. the femininity that the woman has. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know if that's true, but sometimes that has been my experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As like a, a counterpoint, I was listening to uh, the someone's birth story and they wound up having to have their baby stay in the ICU for like six weeks afterwards. Yeah. And uh, they had a male doctor and they also had a male, I don't know if anesthesiologist is the right word, but the person who came in to give her her epidural, both of them were extremely disrespectful to her, so rude to her, did not care. Yeah. The man who was supposed to administer her epidural told her to not stop squirming all over the place, but she was in so much pain that she couldn't, and they didn't realize how far along she was, and she literally like popped the baby out two seconds later. It was like she didn't even get a chance to have the epidural, mm. and he was like, like, you need to stop moving around so much, young lady. Apparently, he also called her young lady, which oh. is gross. But she said during that time, obviously, they spent so much time at the hospital. And she had so many nurses that were so, so caring, female nurses mm-hmm. that were so, so caring and, like, so helpful towards them. And she talked about how, like, I could tell you the name and, like, all about all the the nurses that we worked with. But I couldn't tell you a single thing about the doctor that we had because mm-hmm. he was so uninvolved and not concerned with us. I yeah. mean, it you know? could also just be, like, a reality of being a doctor. You yeah. Know? Like, I do think that's part of it. Nurses do a lot of the legwork yeah. Yeah, when it comes sure. to patient care and all of that for sure shout out to the nurses like we love you we need you we respect you like i mean my sister's a nurse now and she's like yeah it's basically a nurse's job to make sure the doctor doesn't like royally fuck up you're Mm -hmm. the one making sure the dosage is right for the medication and Mm -hmm. they have provide you know they do so much and being paid less for that and also (laughs) it also could be on my part an expectation that if like a woman doctor would like Mm -hmm. be more open to like a certain type of complaint Mm -hmm. whereas like i would expect a male doctor to be more dismissive Mm -hmm. so it could that could be ooh, kind of like the the fallacy of uh the great dad versus the mediocre mom where a dad does like 
bare, bare minimum. And, and they're like, like, wow. Yeah. They're like, wow, you're an amazing father. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And a mom does the bare minimum. And it's like, you're hurting your children. Yeah. Ooh. Yeah. 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 I wonder. So oh, interesting. Yeah. So I want I just want you guys to know the outcome of the study overall because yes. you know, why go through all of that without learning what they went through? So part three, they go into all the data and there's like one thousand little um tables that you can go in and look at if you're really <laughs> interested in that. I read through it and skimmed through most of it, but the data's there. But yeah. the conclusion is if all of what we've discussed wasn't enough, the study does conclude that women tend to overall recoup less money when or if they actually get to the point of winning their civil case. So there is a pay gap once mm-hmm. again. Uh, the present study has found significant differences in recovery amounts for cases in which the patient is female versus cases in which the patient is male, even accounting for a host of contextual factors among adult patients experiencing serious or fatal injuries, and particularly among such patients over the age of 60. Um, and the study talks about this a little bit, like that the older a woman is, the worse. Oh, I wish I could remember the word. The worse kind of recoup that she's going to get, I mean, compensation that she's yeah. going to receive, because there's like less potential future that has been damaged. Oh, gross! Oh, because obviously a woman's potential future is based on whether or right. not she can give birth. Yes. Yeah. So if she's past childbearing years, she's not yeah. of as much value. Yeah. yeah. Oh okay. no. Wow. So, so there's not that same trend with men, though. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So the study adds to the current body of research by showing that there is a gendered injustice in both the medical and legal fields and the gender imbalance in each field reinforces the other. The current medical malpractice standard of care protects a disincentive to change the knowledge and trust gaps. And some policy change is likely needed in both the medical and the legal spheres to better protect women patients and plaintiffs in medical malpractice cases. So that is the conclusion. There is a gap from start to finish. And it does seem to be sort of um, self-reinforcing. And it's also, I think, to me, it's just shocking to learn how little there is to be known about my body. Mm. And also how much weight women have to now carry to research for themselves what the latest information is about our bodies. Yep. Because we can assume and expect that our doctor doesn't have it. I can't help but think about... Okay. <laughs> We're talking about how Greek, ancient Greek culture yeah. affected the way our society was built and sort of some of the foundational values and ideas that we carry as a nation here in the United States of America. There's another really large entity that affected a lot of that that I think is also affecting these things that we're talking about. When we talk about the the value of women being intrinsically linked with their fertility and their ability to give birth and procreate, whereas men have varied and multifaceted value that is applied to them. Mm-hmm. I think that Christianity's influence on American society is a huge like underlying web with mm-hmm. like why so much about women is being discredited here. Mm-hmm. Because there, there is such a history of women being the sole bearers of children, responsible for children, women's purpose being children, while men's purposes, you know. Varied and vast. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So, like, that's, that's fascinating to me to think about as well. And, like, obviously, we have so much experience with 
Christianity and like mm-hmm. the the ways that it's impacted us. And I think that Christianity and the medical system coming together is a whole like hairy tangled web. Oh, well, for I sure. mean, Christianity is or evangelical vote is one of our the largest political entities on the right side of politics. Right. And is it the largest or is it the loudest? I feel like I've heard a lot of mixed oh, I mean, messaging. I, I genuinely believe it was actually like one of the largest voices in the uh, the right side of politics. But I don't I don't know that for sure as a fact. Sure. I've just heard a lot of statistics that evangelicals don't actually make up as big of a block as they say as like. It feels, it feels like, okay. But mm. I, I don't know the like fact check on but that. But either way, we can argue <laughs> yes. influential and loud. Definitely influential. Um, who do you think is influencing politics that would um, cause an organization such as the FDA to prevent women of childbearing age to participate in studies? Exactly. Mm. And mm. Uh, yeah, why, why would the FDA care mm-hmm. about women's fertility? Yeah. Like in a test that they opt into being a part of, yep. yeah. if it was not also linked to this like moral idea yep. that that women in childbirth are yep. are one and the same, mm-hmm. just as women are mm-hmm. used for childbirth throughout the Bible yeah. and mm-hmm. Christianity. And what political entities do you think might come up against any sort of potential suggested legislation about the federal requirements of the FDA and other private pharmaceutical companies to include women in their studies? Just a question. Yeah. You know, I think so much of the reality, I mean, obviously, I think the Christian faith is a piece of it. And then, but the activism of the Christian faith in politics in America, Mm -hmm. I think has deeply wounded and prevented progress Mm. In so many of these areas. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and isn't it the church originally that funded a lot of the building of hospitals? Yes. Like back mm-hmm. in the day. The American so, Red Cross mm-hmm. was, is a Christian I organization. Mean, they're yes. inherently connected. Yes. Right? And so at least from inception of the hospital system. Yeah. And so it kind of makes total sense to me that there would be significant crossover. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's... Yeah, it's hard to, like, ignore to me the idea that there's all of these different things that are influencing it Mm -hmm. um, and bringing it – like, all of these things have the common interest of oppression of women, Mm -hmm. of submission of women. And it is so unjust and, like, it is, I would argue, morally corrupt Mm -hmm. to allow those, like – not mainstream thoughts, ideals, et cetera, influence like our access to healthcare yeah. and yeah. to knowledge. Yeah. And it really ties into like this ideal edification of the heteronormative and monogamous values held by the church mm. and preserving the traditional family unit, unit which mm-hmm. has been a huge force for so many years. Yeah. And still is a huge force. Yeah. Um, which, yeah, it's like you would think that stuff like this would be no brainer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, I thought we had separation of church and state. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's what about the that? Funniest thing ever. <laughs> yeah. Mm. Oh my god. It's really not. It's not. And yeah. I think again, this just makes me think like back to the point I made earlier of like. Anyone that thinks this doesn't affect them or doesn't impact them 
you're like you're wrong. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. this bleeds into mm-hmm. like every area and it also impacts people you know or you. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's something that I don't know. I hope I want women to rally mm-hmm. and just demand better. I but know. also I know that it takes unfortunately time for people to catch up to well, women's yeah. demands like what what is the solution here i think it's do we call our representatives call yeah. your senator and be like hey were you aware of this i want federal regulation that yeah. requires women to be included in medical studies thank you mm-hmm. like so let's close the knowledge gap and yeah. then i think as a result of more and more physical data that is incorporated into education and the medical field we're going to have better equipping of medical practitioners to Mm -hmm. close the trust gap Mm -hmm. and beyond. And I think with the inclusion of women in studies, we also have to talk about race. We also have to talk about sexual identity, et cetera, Mm -hmm. so that more and more people are included Mm -hmm. and the differences and how drugs affect people's systems is included. Yeah. Like we are not all white males. No. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'd say another part of this is divesting like capitalist yeah. incentives sure. from from the medical yes. field. Yeah, because absolutely. one example that I've heard recently was um, there's a medication. I don't remember the name of it for um, helping people who uh, have HIV mm-hmm. uh, and which is obviously predominantly homosexual men. And there are many men that have benefited from this medication. They have been able to regulate their HIV and able to, you know, move forward with their lives and live a better quality of life. But this medication had long-term side effects that broke down their joints and caused a lot of different, like, physical, essentially, like, what's the word? degradation uh and that to the point one man that was interviewed uh about this talked about how he had to retire early from his job because he couldn't physically like carry on but the company that creates the pharmaceutical company that produces this drug had an alternative that they didn't release yet that didn't have those same side effects because their patent hadn't ended Mm -hmm. on the current one yet and they would make less money if they released the other one while the patent was still going on the first one. And so what they did instead was they waited until that patent was ending. And then, and so then like once the patent ends, people are able to make like off-brand versions Mm -hmm. of the drug. Uh, But right when that patent ended, they started the patent for the new drug that they Mm -hmm. had had in their pocket for years and hadn't given to people, which was a safer version of the drug. And so then all the people that were on the other drug were kind of forced to go on to the new drug that was really expensive and that was under the new patent or suffer the consequences of the side effects of the other drug and they get to pay less because you can now get a generic version of it, but you're going to have to have all those side effects. Mm -hmm. And it is, there's so much in medicine (gasps) that- It's infuriating. Yes. There's so much in medicine that really comes down to financial gain. I know earlier we were like joking about how they aren't actually thinking about money making here. Um, because there's so many emotional decisions that are made. But I would argue that this was a financial and emotional decision because 
financially, they were able to profit more off of these people's illnesses. Mm -hmm. But they also emotionally, I would argue, probably don't care as much about these people suffering from their side effects because they're part of a marginalized group as homosexual men. They are not part of the, you know, general, like, top tier people within a patriarchy. So... Hmm. sucks to suck and we're gonna make money off of you well and that is one of the problems about just the fda in general is that the way that the system is set up incentivizes people who have money to gain yeah right and so we have low cost cheap accessible like information and drugs available that have been approved in other countries that we can't get in the u.s Mm -hmm. because nobody has any incentive to get it passed yeah and to fund the studies to make sure that the fda approves it yeah Yeah. and that is another issue yeah Yeah. it is a dirty dark hole the more you learn about things like patents it's Mm -hmm. it's ugly and really gross and it also prevents um research like we mentioned earlier viagra can also help with menstrual cramps but it's not ne- because it's under a certain patent it may not be researched or available in a different way or right. just have the sign off to be prescribed for different things right. even mm-hmm. though it's something that's available and could help people mm-hmm. um it's it's really tragic i mean and to go further like I was chatting with a friend who's in medical school right now, and they were talking about how you're learning about the body and you're learning about how the body works, but also there's a level of cognitive dissonance that has to happen because you have to be on some anti-anxiety meds because it is the most stressful thing that could ever happen to you, and then you need caffeine because you're trying to study and cram, and then you also need to take some sleeping pills because you got to get some sleep, but also then it's like this Mm. vicious cycle, and they were just saying like, you like we're not meant to live the way we live like Mm. humans are meant to have like literally feet in the dirt around trees like that's Mm. how we're meant to live like our bodies have not evolved to the level of progress that we have reached and i think personally it kind of causes a lot of issues but so like there's that level as well like our medical system is not we're we're We've created this system that humans maybe don't fully function in. Well, and I mean, how can you expect a health practitioner who has denied, like, the themselves of what is most healthy for themselves yeah. by subjecting themselves to an institution that requires such extreme, mm-hmm. like, learning curves yeah. with which to get a degree? Mm-hmm. How can we expect someone like that to have the same or more amount of compassion for a patient who right. is dealing with chronic health health, health issues like well and not to mention the privilege that comes with even being able to go to medical school totally right and so like there's just layer upon layer upon layer to all of it it's so complicated and then in the meantime we don't know what causes endometriosis (laughs) seriously which we should just know yeah by now yeah again this is one of the largest afflictions that women are facing in our modern day age yeah it's casual it's fine the system is broken and yeah and it goes so much deeper than obviously we specifically for the most part of this episode talked about kind of the misdiagnosis of um women uh-huh. and um how that affects our ability to get quality health care in the mm-hmm. u.s but obviously there's so many layers to problems within the medical field um much love to doctors and nurses who are doing their best to navigate this because it is no easy 
thing and even more love to our ladies out there who are just trying to get quality medical care. Yeah. Um, it's, it's a whole big conspiracy really <laughs> yeah it's, it's a, mess. a mess yeah oh. <laughs> it is a mess yeah. and yeah i do acknowledge that there are many doctors that are trying to do right by women mm-hmm. like there are doctors that are working hard to make sure that women can get access to abortive care yep. there mm-hmm. are doctors that are working to make sure that women are able to get um hysterectomies or are like just cared for in the medical mm-hmm. system like those doctors do exist and mm-hmm. they are fighting the good fight yes uh but there's also so much negative experience yeah. that people have had mm-hmm. um when it comes to the medical system and so much so many walls that women have come up against mm-hmm. that it is it is overwhelming it is infuriating mm-hmm. and yeah it feels like how do we even start like where do we where do we begin you yeah. know um but yeah um call your representative or something i don't know uh, <laughs> i'm like let's Great start a march. March. let's uh let's plan a and endometriosis 5k yeah seriously oh my gosh, oh my gosh. i think that could be successful that actually would be, there might be one be out huge. there there I probably should be yeah um but ladies thank you so much for joining me today i'm glad that you were willing to sit down and hear the study again I tried to pare it down, but it is 50 pages long, so I did my best. No, I mean, kudos Uh, to you for reading a 50-plus page study, Kelly. (laughs) Thank you for prepping it. Well, it's actually 49 pages, so not 50. 50 It's 50 minus. 50-ish. 50-ish. 50-minus page But, yeah, I was just so fascinated by the retrievals and kind of how women are – dismissed within the medical field and that like led me down this rabbit trail and anyways it, it does affect us and this is something mm-hmm. we've been wanting to talk about for a long time so yeah. um i do think like you said earlier kel this is a great example of how sexism has persisted yes um whenever people make the argument that we're sex- past that, that yeah that sexism no longer exists that we don't need feminism anymore you can point them directly to this kind of stuff like this is a blatant example of sexism yeah take a look at some hard facts some hard data and you're gonna see some really big issues that are not just like you know like mean they're like killing people yeah Yeah. you know so um yeah again thank you for joining me today thank you woman beings for joining us um i do hope you didn't listen to this in the morning and ruin your whole day but if you did <laughs> i hope that you're fired up to yeah i hope that you fight f- for change yeah. and yeah. walk through your day with a nice empowered rage <laughs> yes. just bubbling underneath Tell you everyone about it yeah. it's your problem so it should be everyone's problem exactly. until it's not your problem <laughs> so uh the people you the people can find us on apple Podcasts, spotify wherever you get your podcasts we're also on youtube and um please follow us on social media and subscribe we are at woman being podcast on instagram and tiktok and uh we love to interact with you there get dms from you get your comments respond to your comments so thanks for everyone that um has been participating and sending us stuff and talking to us and all that stuff we love it um lastly if you would please leave us a review we are um in dire need desperate need need. (laughs) 
<laughs> of your support. Um, no, but if you if you love the content that we're producing, if this is stuff that something that resonates with you, and you want other people to hear it too, um, leaving us a review is one of the most practical ways that you can support. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's all for now, and we're gonna wrap. So right. that's that's it. We'll catch you next time. That's all, folks. Next month.